Hi everyone and welcome to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. Wow, I have to tell you that this week is a pretty special episode. Today we were joined by the amazing Sheila Atin. Sheila is a really incredible theatre maker. We met working on Conor McPherson's stunning Bob Dylan musical, Girl from the North Country, at the Old Vic back in 2018. If any of you saw that show, then I have no doubt you are still haunted by Sheila's rendition of Tight Connection to My Heart. I've never been able to get it out of my head since. Sheila won an Olivier Award for her role in that show, which is just one of her many accolades. Her theatre career reads like a list of the greatest shows of the last decade, from Les Blanc at the National Theatre to Phila Lloyd's groundbreaking all-female Shakespeare trilogy to Girl from the North Country. She also writes plays too. Her screen work is equally impressive, including Harlots for Hulu, The Pale Horse on the BBC and The Underground Railroad for Amazon. And to top it all off, Sheila was awarded an MBE at the age of 29. Oh, and she also has a degree in biomedical sciences. Impressive doesn't quite cover it. I was seriously out of my depth here, but luckily Sheila is an incredibly generous, funny and brilliant human being. So it's never anything but a joy to be talking to her. Sheila's play crush is Agamemnon by Aeschylus. It's a 2,500-year-old ancient Greek play and forms the first part of the Oresteia trilogy. It details the homecoming of Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, from the Trojan War. After ten years of warfare, Troy has fallen and all of Greece could lay claim to victory. Waiting at home for Agamemnon is his wife, Queen Clytemnestra, who has been planning his murder. She desires his death to avenge the sacrifice he made of her daughter Iphigenia. The play's mood carries a heavy sense of impending doom, from the watchman's opening scene through the chorus's foreboding words and Cassandra's prophecies, the drama prepares the audience for the king's murder. This is a play about cycles of violence, war, patriarchy and colonisation, to name but a few of its many themes. Just before we get started with Sheila, I just wanted to say a big thank you for everyone listening and supporting both the Sherman Theatre and the Old Vic. We're both charities and there is no way we could survive these difficult times without your support. So thank you so much. Now, with no further ado, here is Sheila with Agamemnon. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Play Crush. We've got the amazing Sheila Atim with us. Hi Sheila. Hello. How's it going? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Oh, wicked. I mean, how have you been finding the last few weeks? Um, an adjustment, but I mean, I'm quite a boring person anyway, so like sitting in my house, <laughs> uh, you know, not being able to go out, I was like, oh, my, my usual life. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been interesting because usually I'm quite busy. So, um, you know, not having to go outside and, and run around and deal with, you know, tube and London transport and city life has been an adjustment but I've sort of you know it's it's been fine I mean I'm I'm one of the lucky ones in the sense that I'm not having to deal with the very sort of real life impact of what's going on at the moment so I'm I'm just I'm happy I'm healthy I'm safe you know so it's all you can hope for really in this time yeah definitely and how is it being an actor I mean is it is it are you still working as actor is there like online auditions or work you're doing or how's all that working out yeah I mean well the the industry's kind of on pause both screen and theatre um it remains to be seen which one of those will kind of reboot first and in what way because they you know they sort of operate kind of differently um but you know, I've been doing some voiceovers because obviously that's the sort of stuff you can do at home, like this kind of recording. Um, and there have I had a few tapes earlier on in the beginning, um, but I think it's it's a tricky one because I think you know, particularly with screen projects, things are in different areas of development, right? So some things are like ready to cast and ready to shoot. Some things were about to shoot when everything kind of stopped. Um, some things are not quite in the casting stage yet. So I think everyone's kind of taking their own individual um, approach towards how they move forward to sort of keep the momentum behind their projects going whilst also recognising that they don't know exactly when, you know, things are going to start up. Yeah, it's it's just been a time where I've kind of gone, look, I don't have any control over this situation. So all I can do is, you know, keep my mind right been you know doing bits of writing and 
bits of reading and fun stuff as well, not just all work related, but just trying to kind of relinquish control a little bit because that's, you know, your hand's been forced to do that. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah. And have you found, have you found like a positivity in that in a way? Like, has there been positives that have come out of that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I like the fact that, Again, you know, without trying to ignore or diminish the the sort of real crisis that's going on in the outside world, I like the fact that I've been given a moment to hit pause on my life. Um, and I've been playing my instruments a lot, but like practicing them, which is something that I really hadn't been doing for a while. I've been writing music and I've been sort of, you know, musically involved over the last, I don't know, five years. But the actual opportunity to just like, carve out some time to practice the piano or practice the violin or whatever is something that I'd sort of lost so that's been nice to kind of touch base with again um and yeah I think this time has thrown everyone into a into a period of reflection right and introspection and it sort of makes you think about life but it also makes you as a creative it's making me think about like what I want to do why I'm here what I want to say you know all that like super super ethereal stuff um so (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's it's it's been nice because I've been trying to keep that with a with a sort of relaxed attitude as opposed to like right how do I maximize this time to make it really productive (laughs) like there there was that feeling at first and then I was just like "Mm, well whatever I do in this time is going to be productive to some degree so just try and keep a nice easy sort of outlook on everything I guess yeah, I remember at the beginning, um, there's this big thing that Shakespeare wrote Lear. Like he wrote King Lear during a plague lockdown. Mm. Um, and so there was all this stuff going around about like, well, everyone's got to write King Lear now. We've got to write <laughs> yeah. the most genius play ever written. and uh, Get to it, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now it's basically gifts about monkeys. Like everyone's sending me. Well, of says, course. Been... But also like <laughs> Shakespeare, kind of Shakespeare didn't have gifts, right? So like, <laughs> yes, you will write King Lear when there's no gifts. But when there's gifts, it's harder to write King Lear. So, exactly. you know, and I don't like, I don't, I'm not on socials, right? So, and that was a, that was a conscious choice. I came off them. Um, and I'm trying to like, you know, not engage with my phone too much. But I don't begrudge our modern day society for having those things. I think it's important to have a balance and to try and build a conscious relationship with those things. But I don't begrudge those guilty pleasures or those moments to kind of disengage a little bit like it's it's you know it's we're not we're not used to being inside all the time and I know we've just recently been given a bit more um freedom to move around but we're not used to it it's not something that comes naturally to us as kind of well it does come naturally to me but like social beings (laughs) 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 you know and the way humans have developed over the however many you know 400 plus years since Shakespeare was around so I'm not I'm not you know I'm not hating on people for wanting to look at monkey gifts like yeah go for it why not yeah you're allowing me my monkey gifts have your monkey gifts have them have them thank you (laughs) and that that choice to come off socials was that a lockdown choice or had you already made that decision as a little like you said to build a conscious relationship with that and pull back a bit Oh yeah, I did that before lockdown. I did that like maybe two years ago. I think Twitter was oh, the nice. last one that I came off. Yeah, I just was, I mean, I, I was, I'm not really somebody who, you know, I don't take selfies. I don't really take a lot of photos. I'm not really somebody who has um, lots to say in the way that those platforms lend themselves to, if that makes sense. I'm not really somebody who has like a sort of a need to, um like express a stream of consciousness constantly. Like I, I find it quite interesting, you know, the I mean, people interact with these platforms in different ways, right? But a lot of people will tweet multiple times a day when something pops into their head. That's not really how I think. And that's not a criticism of those people, but that's just not really what I do. I'm very much like a ruminator who likes to sit in the dark and think about things for, you know, like three weeks and then emerge like, hmm, I think I might have an answer to that question, but maybe I don't. And then go back into the dark and think about it some more. You know, that's my that's my <laughs> process. So like socials wasn't really compatible with me. But then at the same time, I found I was spending a lot of time on them because I was, you know, scrolling, just doing the constant, constant scrolling. So it felt like a kind of one-way relationship where I didn't feel like I was necessarily getting what I wanted out of socials or putting in what I wanted into socials. So I just got rid of them. 
and I've you know I've been happier ever since but that's because that suits me as a person really yeah but I like that you you, it's about not just doing it blindly in a sense just Mm. like thinking like what works for me what doesn't and making that choice feels brilliant yeah and um I also just want to pick up on your music there. Is it is it right that you wanted, before being an actor, you were thinking about being a musician? Yeah, I was going to be a singer-songwriter. Um, nice. That was the sort of, when I had my big shift, when I was like, I'm not going to be a doctor, I was like, I'm going to be a singer-songwriter. And so I spent about a year going on this quest with my cousin, who's also a singer-songwriter, um, to kind of figure out what that all means, because I'd spent my life up until that point at school um, gearing up towards a career in science um, and not really knowing or understanding anything about the performance world, you know, or the music industry or how do people make songs, you know, like how does that process happen? How do people get record deals? How do people distribute stuff? I didn't know anything about that stuff. And to be honest, I still don't really know. <laughs> but because um, <laughs> uh, acting kind of, came in and just slide tackled me from the right really but um yeah like I I I went on this year of sort of joining you know arts colleges and youth clubs and programs and all these different amazing sort of you know free funded things that we need to keep hold of please if anyone listening who has some money to give to the arts but um <laughs> yes yeah, yeah, so well, I've been told that uh Boris Johnson is a major fan of Play Crush so fantastic right well if you're listening yeah, Bojo so. if you wouldn't mind I know you got a bit on your plate at the moment but if you wouldn't mind um yeah so uh yeah that's kind of what I did and I, I ended up going to WAC Arts which is a college in Belsize Park um, on a Sunday and then sort of got back into acting through that while doing the singing classes because I'd done acting at school and actually the play that I'm going to discuss is one of the ones that I've done at school um so oh, great yeah so and I did it whack as well so I did it twice um but yeah so it, it all kind of I mean it's still there it's definitely still there obviously there's a lot of singing in my work as an actor I still write songs I haven't necessarily made anything for like larger public consumption yet um and I think that's because I'm still trying to work out like who I am musically what my sound is and and I sort of am trusting that when the time is right that will fall into place and that will make itself clear to me so it's not something that I feel the need to actively pursue as of yet um but it has been really nice to touch base with it all and to to um realize how rusty I am on all of my instruments (laughs) oh that was yeah that was a that was a real reckoning that the violin oh my god (laughs) well Sheila you're talking to a grade two violinist here oh fantastic Um, so if you need hints you need tips listen I mean yeah my my left hand technique has um been very slowly improving I feel really bad for my neighbors because you know I live in quite a decent um block of flats actually but you can kind of hear everything so I'm trying to play really really quietly because I just like it's hurting my own ears so like (laughs) I don't know how they're dealing and I'm playing the same pieces again and again and I just have this like image of them being like oh she's gone back onto that that Vivaldi like why you know they're with you they're on the well, quest is, as you get better. This is the other thing. They're I'm like, yes. Yeah, I'm sort of hoping that they're like, oh, it's better today. Like they're keeping track of it as well. That's what I'm hoping. And they sort of feel like they're growing with me. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm still trying to play quietly just to be considerate because who knows what everyone's dealing with. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, we've got, um, so when I do my state-sanctioned walk, um, mm. there's a teenager just down the road who's clearly learning the drums. Yeah. Um, and I hear him each time I walk past and you do get sucked in I'm like this guy has got a beat today he's living yeah. it I'm oh so that's into it. great oh well I actually bought myself um an electronic drum kit literally the second lockdown was announced I was like right I'm getting a drum kit because like it's like if ever there was a time to buy something that you usually can't really justify the price it's now because I'm going to be inside and I'm going to yeah. be practicing it so I bought this drum kit it's, it's, a, it's a cheap one actually but I bought it and I bought an electronic one, so I'm not making too much noise. But um, that, too, has been very, very slowly improving. So, yeah, I really hope. I mean, if you fancy doing your government walk near mine, you know, past my balcony, if you want a change from the teenager down the road, um, 
Yes. You could, you know, just let me know how you think I'm doing. That'd be really nice. Yeah. And maybe I'll bring you a little scorecard each day. Uh, yeah. You know, just to re- so you can see, you know, healthy feedback. Um, yeah, like yeah, how yeah. the drumming's going. Oh, that'd be really nice. So what instruments... Yeah, it'd be helpful, wouldn't it? Uh, so what instruments do you play then? Um, I mean, I play them all to like varying degrees of competency, as we've just discussed. But I play the piano and the violin. They're the two instruments that I've had sort of formal training on in my life. And then I sort of dabble in slash taught myself the bass, the drums, and I'm trying to teach myself upright bass as well, which is, um, yeah. which is like, it's coming along. I'm very surprised because it's, oh, it's not an easy one, but um, yeah, I actually started, <laughs> I actually started learning after um, Girl from the North Country sort of on and off because I sort of became really enamored by it because the, the bassist in our company, uh, Don, was just so brilliant. And he showed me a few tips and then I sort of run with it. So, yeah. I mean, it's still not amazing, Dom, just letting you know. It's still not, (laughs) like, I've been traveling a lot. So it's been quite hard to, like, keep up. Look at all the excuses coming out. It's been hard to keep up with, um, you know, my practice as much as usual. So it's been really nice to be able to just sit in it and do it and make some progress. Yeah. Yeah, don't judge her, Dom, okay? Don't, don't judge, judge her. me. She's doing brilliantly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting on um, a girl from North Country, because as you say, that, that had a sort of mix of your of, of your musical ability, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, although it was obviously Bob Bob Dylan's music um, and acting. Um, yeah. And was, was that a moment, do you think, for you, where some of that came together in a way or sort of landed in a way? Does, does that play in any way feel formative for you? Yeah, definitely, because... I think, you know, when you're working with music like from any icon or anyone who is kind of highly revered in the way that Bob is, or at least like is recognized as this sort of tour de force, um, that's always going to be informative because you you just feel the weight of what you're working with. I mean, Connor McPherson, who directed it and wrote it, was really, and Simon Hale, who was the, um, who was working with the music, was was they were both great at, you know, trying to strip away some of the reverence around the music just so that we weren't too intimidated by it and it just felt like music, right? But even so, his work is quite complex. So it was it was really interesting to work with and to, you know, delve in deep. And I definitely felt a shift. I felt a shift in the way I wrote songs after that. Um, and I sort of felt very unafraid to mess around with my lyrics and my melodies and because I just realized that you know this guy Bob I mean I say it like I know him Bob Dylan <laughs> um, <laughs> your mate your mate Bob my mate, but this this bloke uh he he himself was in a way kind of irreverent about his own work right you know his his life performances are always wildly different to what he's recorded sometimes he's got multiple recordings his sound changed completely through the course of his career his voice changed um now he performs his shows with his back to the audience <laughs> which i think is hilarious um <laughs> You know, like he just he throw away words and he play around with things, and that just really kind of blew the whole songwriting thing open for me. I was like, I can kind of do whatever I want. Actually, it doesn't really matter if no one really gets what I'm talking about. Maybe they will in in you know five years time after listening to the song over and over again. So yeah, yeah, and when they do the Sheila or Tim musical at the old Vic, obviously, uh, yeah, that would be of your work. fantastic. Yeah, and I'll be in it uh playing yeah, obviously come yeah, on playing my like older self or like my own mother or something it's be kind of like weird yeah, with and a mess massive the drum train. solo at the end yeah <laughs> god i love it oh how amazing well um shall we talk about agamemnon uh your mm. play choice yeah. your play crush um amazing choice yeah um you know i mean this play cuts right to like the birth of theater right? yeah i was like let's just go in like super soft and easy with a <laughs> with a really just like un- a light comedy yeah with a really like just casual kitchen sink drama no yeah Agamemnon absolutely um I've done it twice as I said so it's sort of I mean it's I think it's it's definitely one of my favorite plays I'm not really somebody who has like a like a staple like oh yeah that is the thing I always return to but it's popped up in my life twice and I saw the um production that Robert Icke did um with the Almeida so I think it was the Almeida so um yeah, yeah I've, right, I've yeah. yeah I've like got a lot of sort of 
experiences with it. I did it when I was, I don't know, 15? Um, is that, I think how old I would have wow. been. Who, who did you play? 15. I was Clytemnestra both times. Oh, amazing. Clytemnestra at school and then I was Clytemnestra at WAC. Um, yeah, and it's been really interesting, even like rereading it and I actually read the full version this time because, you know, whenever you do classics, um, if you get a job and you walk in in the rehearsal room, they're giving you the abridged version of the script, right? They're giving you the version that they're going to do for their production. So I've never sat and read the whole thing. Um, and I, man, I just learned so, so much more stuff. Like it's, it's like reading a completely new play, which, you know, I will talk about in great depth over this next, um, don't know how long we've got, 20 minutes or whatever, <laughs> to sound really intelligent. But it's really nice like to be able to have the opportunity to revisit something a couple of times in your life. You know, it's interesting because when I did it the first time at school, that was a time in my life where I didn't necessarily have any ambitions to be an actor. I just enjoyed acting, right? So it was for the school production. Um, and then the next time I did it was at a time when I was sort of in that transition period where... I was taking these drama classes, but I didn't know if I was going to be an actor. I didn't know if I was going to be a singer. I, d I didn't really know where I was. And then when I watched it, um, when I watched the Almeida production, I was an actor by that point. So it's kind of almost a play that's tracked with me, the different stages through my sort of creative life so far, really. And 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 did your responses to it like did you can, did you have like three different responses to it at that time, um, or did the play hold and it was the same sort of feeling? I mean, yeah, like the the overall feeling is is always the same and actually kind of grows over time, which is like what is basically <laughs> how I feel. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah, that sound, right? I mean, when I first read it, I'm not going to lie, I didn't, really didn't understand what was going on. I just thought it was, like, mad. And was still kind of learning how to read classical texts and grapple with that um, as a sort of school student. And then the second time, I was like, oh, I remember this play from school. I liked this play, actually. I really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, was was but was also sort of in a class where I was now training to be an actor. So the 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 um the angle was different the way I was looking at it was different because it was sort of as much as it was a performance it was also an exercise right and in, in studying text and then by the time I came to watching the production and reading it now this time you know I've done a lot of um I've done a lot of Shakespeare so reading classical text and reading verse is something that's I mean it's not written in verse but reading that kind that style of writing is something that's you know much easier for me now um, so now I can just kind of dive in really deep. Uh, but yeah, it's just the maddest. I mean, you know, these, these massive Greek tragedies often are, but it's just the maddest, like it, you just couldn't write it. And yet somebody did, <laughs> you just couldn't write it. You know, you've yeah, got yeah. people eating their own kids. You got, you know, people getting stabbed in the bath. You got sacrificing <laughs> your own daughter. Like it's all going on. Um, yeah. so, you know. Why not? As a kid, as you say, it's like, you know, those texts I think can be quite um, impenetrable and alienating. Mm. Uh, I know I found them like that when I was young, but then the stories of sort of, you know, bloodshed and everything got, is what got me excited about it all. Mm. Um, and, and But did, your, did you find at school, like, had they made that text accessible to you? Like, did, did you find that kind of relevance in it? Or, or did that come, as you say, later once you started getting into the play properly as an actor? I think... I mean, you know, my my um, drama teacher at school, James French, was a legend because he always tried to push the boat out when it came to the school productions, when it came to what he was teaching us in class. You know, he didn't want to just do a nice school production of a nice palatable kids show that we could all do. He was, you know, trying to put things on like Agamemnon with kids who were <laughs> like 12, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you know, I really rate and respect him for that. Um but obviously at that age, your, your understanding of that stuff is going to be limited. Like I, I know obviously that killing your own daughter, which Agamemnon does, or sacrificing your own daughter is not a good thing at that age. But now that I'm an older woman, you know, now that I'm 29 and around the age where my friends are having children, there are younger children in my family, that falls with a different kind of weight, you know, the the, the understanding of mm. what it means for for children to die or for, for men to go to war or even even my sort of 
political understanding, right? My political engagement obviously has increased as I've got older. And the understanding of what it means to take a country to war in order to help your brother's to save your brother's wife you know but then that means you have to kill your daughter it's like it's is that stuff just is stuff that you can't really fully comprehend when you're at a certain age um so I think but I think my 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 school and the people that I've worked with you know Che Walker was the man who taught me um at WAC right and so each of these people have been really instrumental in sort of allowing my understanding of this world, this kind of classical, super epic world to grow. Um, but also it's just living life, isn't it? It's just living life, it's just observing things, seeing people around you and things start to, pennies start to drop, even if it's years later, you know? Yeah, I love that. I love that um, you've developed alongside a play and you can sort of like track yourself and check in with yourself mm. from this thing that's staying constant all the way through, but you're changing in relation to it. That's yeah. really cool. I mean, let's talk about the play a bit. I mean, like plot wise, you know, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Agamemnon's coming home from having won the war in Troy, been yeah. away 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um and Clytemnestra, his wife, played by Sheila Tim twice, no less, mm-hmm. um, it, it is wait, waiting at home and sort of feigns a sort of uh, celebratory welcome back yep. uh, that secretly is harboring um, ideas to kill him because, as you say, he, on the way out to the war 10 years ago, sacrificed Clytemnestra's daughter for fair winds. Mm-hmm. Um, so Clytemnestra ends up killing Agamemnon um, and then deciding to rule the city by herself yeah um, and I suppose that's like the plot of the play but like for you like what is this play about do you think like or or and has that changed or, or what do you feel like it's about today well uh, yeah I was thinking about this when I was reading it because as I said I've re- I read the full version as opposed to the abridged version and what really struck me was the chorus now obviously we you know in our sort of modern western societies we don't really do productions that are that much longer than three hours right at three hours everyone's starting to get a little bit like a bit over it <laughs> looking for the last tube do you know what I mean and I get like fine whatever that's that's how society develops right but um you know the result of that is that the chorus is often really cut right that's the thing that kind of gets sacrificed for for lack of a better word um for the sake of the production because everyone wants to get down to the meat of the story and the main characters but when I was reading this I was like the the chorus to me are so interesting and so um culpable in this whole story I feel like they're really a part of the story right the the they talk a lot about this curse that is on this family right on this house have a piece of trivia about this actually which we'll come back to but it all started from tantalus right who he angered the gods at this feast and so they were like right we're going to curse your house for i think it's 300 years or something um it's a and, classic right 300 to minimum yeah yeah minimum. just a, just like it's a nice round number do you know what i mean um yeah, it's and casual. yeah <laughs> and so uh all the all the sons of that house ever since have been having beef with their brothers and have been you know like <laughs> Agamemnon's father fed his own brother's kids to him at a feast and which is why Aegisthus who is Agamemnon's cousin also wants to seek revenge so he sort of teams up with Clytemnestra so that they can do it together um you know there's there's been all this kind of history of of um bloodshed in their family um and it's constantly talked about this curse, this curse, this, this, the fates, you know, that, that they will have their blood. And I sort of go, yeah, but you guys all stood and watched it. Um, and I just, I just wonder how much the chorus has a part to play in this story as well. Because when you track the way they talk about the different characters, right, they, they really don't like Clytemnestra. They sort of pretend to, but they don't like her. Big fans of Agamemnon, right? They love him. They were like, oh, can't wait till he's going to get back. But then every now and then they're like, oh, yeah, remember that time when he killed his daughter? Yeah, that was that was bad. Anyway, like, can't wait for him to get back. You're like, what? Because I remember when I was doing this play as a kid, right, I never understood why everyone hated Clytemnestra so much. Because I was like, he killed their kid. He killed their daughter. And she's had to wait 10 years to have her... Um, have her reckoning with that like if that was me I'd be I'd be a bit annoyed do you know what I mean I'd be a bit wound up by that um yeah fair, especially fair. yeah fair especially because I think like he didn't even consult her about this he wasn't even like look I'm gonna do this thing I think he tricked her and said like oh can you can you just call um 
Iphigenia from um I don't know cello practice or whatever it is that she was doing like can you just call her I've just got something to I've got something to talk to her about I think he wanted to like said he was going to marry her to someone and Clarta was like oh it's amazing great and then he comes home and he's like actually I killed her sorry but it's yeah it's that's a lot right so um it's punchy that is punchy I I always found that absolutely insane that the chorus were kind of on his side um but then they have these moments of awareness where they they have these speeches where they say oh yes but actually you know if you kill people then blood will shed so they they're very fickle in their way Mm. and I think I think the chorus you know they have they have a lot um to answer for because if you if you if you live your life or you are you know, undertaking an act and somebody witnesses that act, the very fact that there are witnesses change the way in which you undertake that act, you know, whether it means you mm. you don't do that act anymore because you know that someone's watching you or you do it in a different way or you, you know, like the way in which Clytemnestra has had to feign this love for him in order to wait for him to come back, that's because there's people watching, right? So, um, yeah, for me, it was like the interplay between the chorus and the rest of this story is so interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's right as well. Because I suppose in a way the chorus is sort of society or whatever. You know, they're the sort of broader. And I do think like you know, if society rewards us for something, we're going to keep doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And so society seems to keep rewarding Agamemnon for basically being a dick, uh, for yeah. killing his own daughter, for like invading another country. You know, and he just keeps getting rewarded. So I think that that idea of culpability is really interesting. Yeah, um, and they the sort concept. of like they. It's just, it's the, like, even with Cassandra, you know, they sort of, like, Cassandra's interesting because she's the, you know, she's the concubine that was brought back as a spoiler of war. Um, and Agamemnon brings her back in Clytemnestra's face. And the, it's very interesting because the words he uses, he's like, oh, this is Cassandra. She follows me. Um, it's a shame because no one chooses slavery. But, you know, like, hang on, but you enslaved her. So <laughs> I don't know why you're <laughs> making out like, oh, she, oh, here she is, Cassandra. I mean, oh, it's just so, such a shame, isn't it? Anyway, so off you go, up to my room. She's so yeah. She just won't leave me alone. Oh, God. Just like, <laughs> and you've done that in front of your wife as you've returned after 10 years. Um, and no one sort of calls him on it. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, God, so glad he's back. And I get it because there's, there's also this, this, this sort of double, um, this double motivation of the chorus, which is that, you know, I don't think Clytemnestra has been treating them particularly well in Agamemnon's absence. But also they don't want to become slaves to Troy. They don't want to hear that he's lost the war and now they're all enslaved to some other place. So... I understand to some degree why they feel the need to sort of feign on this, uh, to fawn on this guy, but it's like the vitriol that is directed towards Clytemnestra, even Cassandra. Cassandra, she remarks on how wrong it is for a woman to be plotting to kill a man. And it's sort of the, the, the um, implication, at least the way I read it, is that it's not that she wants revenge that's bad. It's the fact that it's a woman plotting to kill a man. Like, it's almost against nature. Yet when this man decides to kind of sail across the seas for the sake of some beef that his brother's got with some guy and kill all of these people, that's fine. Like, oh, what a hero. What a warrior. What a, what a ledge. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, you're totally right. I mean, I feel like the Greeks are, like, terrified by women anyway, I think. Like, the, the, yeah. that sort of ancient Greek drama, you know, whether it's Medea or, you know, or it's Clytemnestra, whatever, they're sort of, they're terrified by mm. women basically just starting to slaughter men. Mm. And I think that's what's quite interesting about Agamemnon, right? Because, like, you can either see it in some way as a sort of um, damning, um, of evil women mm. um, or you can see it as like a revenge quest against patriarchy and colonialism mm-hmm. um, and justice being served and I find like I find that just really interesting about the play that it's it, you know in in a modern context you're like Agamemnon is the criminal here like without mm. a doubt like, mm. he's the guy murdering people and going to war mm. um, so I find that like I, I think that's a really interesting bit of the play to be picking up on it's so interesting this, you know, like Cassandra and these uh, and the chorus, they talk about these three women that are sort of sitting on the house, cursing the house and, you know, raining down sort of um, ill intentions on the house as part of this 300 year old curse that was triggered by Tantalus. 
So, you know, you've got Cassandra, Clytemnestra, uh, these three fates, all these women who are sort of cursed with these bad sort of evil spirits if a Janiya gets killed. And, and it's weird because there's no... Um, I mean, maybe between Clytemnestra and the fates, but it doesn't feel like there's a synchronicity between them. And actually what happens is they all sort of, they all curse each other. Like, what is what is that? Why is it that these women who are all suffering to some degree at the hands of some arrogant man um, can't just sort of come together and, and find some kind of power as a sort of union? I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. Um, it is really interesting because I also think like, you know, that's the way an oppressive power like holds on, right? Is it, mm. it, it keeps you disconnected. Mm. Um, and, and as soon as you can connect and realize the oppression is a shared thing, you can mm. kind of overthrow it. But that is what's really interesting is definitely that the male power keeps all those women separate. Mm. Um, and somehow, and it's, it's sort of quite gaslighty to me as well. It's mm. sort of like convincing them that they're the bad ones. Yeah. Um, well, that's you know, the other interesting just... thing about the chorus, right? Is like, because I mean, you can cast your chorus however you want, but in the script, it's written as a sort of gaggle of old men, right? But they very much insulate this dynamic, right? And create a situation where there can be no change. And there's this really interesting line uh, earlier on in the script where they someone says something like the voice of the people oh, it has lots of power or something and that line really pinged out to me because I was like yes the the large group of people i.e the rest of society have so much power actually over these few people who sit at the top and yet the, there's always this kind of pyramid effect where um maybe that power isn't being realized or maybe that power is being worked but in a way that people aren't willing to um aren't willing to admit to so like when this there's there's a line that Clytemnestra has towards the end where she says um she's killed Agamemnon and they're all very angry at her um (laughs) they're all very annoyed and then she says um she says oh and now you sentence me you banish me from the city curses breathing down my neck but he name one charge you brought against him then he thought no more of it than killing a beast, and his flocks were rich, teeming in their fleece. But he sacrificed his own child, own daughter, the agony I laboured into love, to charm away the savage winds of Thrace. Then she says, didn't the Lord demand you banish him? Which is like a massive revelation. So I'm like, oh, so hang on. What he did was actually a, a, like a, a punishable crime by law, and the chorus didn't do anything. They just kind of left him to carry on. Right. So then you start to go back to this idea of the fates and the way the chorus are saying, oh, well, you know, these these three women sitting on the house breathing down curses. And I'm like, well, if you banished him for his act, then he wouldn't have been able to go to war. And then maybe Clytemnestra wouldn't have felt the need to take her own vengeance. And then none of this would have happened. Right. So then you start to go. "Mm, So how involved are the chorus actually in what happens? It's just like that's that's something that I think if I wanted to do a production of it. I mean, it would probably end up being four days long because of this reason. But like, I would want, <laughs> I would want the chorus to be a really integral part of the whole thing because I think they are key to it. Actually, the way they kind of flip back and forth, even when they're talking to Cassandra, like she's she's literally rolling around on the floor, right? Like having these awful visions of like murder and death and horrendous stuff. And the chorus are like, "Oh, this poor girl. She's just having such a terrible time." Like watching her. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah oh poor girl if only there was something we could do to oh and she's literally saying like there's gonna be murder in the house there's gonna be murder it's gonna be awful and they're like oh yeah god so terrible and then they hear this scream right they hear Agamemnon scream and then someone's like what's that well what do you think it is mate like she's just spent <laughs> she just spent all this time writhing in pain from visions of Apollo and I know her curse is that you know no one believes her but for some reason the chorus sort of do believe her um and they're going, oh, I think someone might be dead. Like, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's so interesting because, you know, modern society, I mean, all societies, clearly, if this was written how many thousands of years ago, but societies do kind of do that. We do sort of watch things happening and how much we interact with those things is is kind of flexible, you know? What's our culpability? What's our, what's our part in everything? Um, yeah, and so... Is that something that really that really chimes with you? Does it this idea of like um, communal culpability, uh, and that sort of we are you know our sort of brother's keeper in a way like we we have a responsibility 
yeah. to each other. Well, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's something that I grapple with and it's something that I don't know where I am in in terms of how I feel about that, right? I mean, obviously, you know, stand up for what's right and stand up against injustice and et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's obviously something that I believe in, whilst also recognising that it's very difficult to do that in actuality. And it can also be very difficult to change things, things that are very much embedded into the status quo. Like that can be a really difficult thing to do. And do you, like there's this really interesting section where um, after they hear the stab, and, um, you know, Dr. Obvious is like, oh, I think someone might be dying. Like then the rest of the chorus start to go, well, what should we do? Should we do? And some people are like, I'm going to rush in there and I'm going to I'm going to confront her. And then someone's like, no, don't do it. And then someone's like, yeah, but, you know, they say something like better to better to die on your knees than to stand a slave or something like that. And it's like everyone suddenly has all these different opinions about how they should deal with this moment. And there's no unity in that, which is very difficult because all of those all of those ideas have some merit to some degree, but if you're going to do it on your own, then how effective is it? You know. Um, so I suppose that's that's it's a complicated thing. How do you um, how do you mobilize people all in one direction for a greater cause? And I think actually going back to social media, it's interesting because I I feel like social media should have the power to do that, um, and sometimes it does, and then sometimes it doesn't, and I still don't understand why that is. Like, why is it that we can have a situation where, you know, a social media platform is affecting potentially affecting elections, you know, or f- affecting huge referendums and votes, but then at the same time, when we want to push forward some sort of societal change, it's kind of slow and backfooted, and it's difficult, and it's you know, it's got this kind of duality to it that I haven't really figured out and haven't understood. And then I think maybe it's not the platform, maybe it's just us sort of as human beings and it's a reflection of us. And this is what I do when I sit for three weeks in the dark, as I mentioned earlier, (laughs) asking myself (laughs) questions and then trying to figure out what the answers are. Um, I think it's amazing that you're essentially saying the same crisis that the chorus were having two and a half thousand years ago is the crisis we're having now, but just on social media. But it's the same thing. And I think, you know, it it, it feels like what you're talking about is like, how do you balance being an individual and a Mm. member of a community? Like, how Mm. do you do both of those things? My my struggle with the Greeks, I find them dry sometimes, Mm. you know, um, but then the way you talk about it like that, it's so full of meat and guts and... Mm like our experience right now leaders mm. taking us into wars i mean mm-hmm. you know we've all experienced that in a lifetime haven't we yeah you know as you say the situation now like again how do you be an individual within that community i just think that's a really brilliant interpretation of the play and a really amazing thing to see in it yeah i think it's very seductive because the stuff in the play is so mad you know like people killing kids and people eating children and that we sort of get drawn to ping out those bits of the story and we sort of think well the audience won't care about the other bits because we need to just get to the the drama that is going on in this very domestic situation and I think whilst that is very important the domestic happens in a very public forum right it happens as I said there are witnesses to all of this stuff that happens and that definitely has an impact on the way in which the sequence of events plays out. I, I don't believe that it's just fate. I believe that there is probably fate involved. I mean, there kind of has to be in this world if you're going to start talking about gods and sacrifice. But, you know, to what degree the fate is pulled around and pushed around by other people and by ban- bystanders, I think is really important to explore. Yeah, definitely. And on that, is there, like, have you got a favourite moment is there, you know, having reread it, was there a, 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 there a part of the play or maybe a couple of parts where you were just like, it's, there it is, that's that's the play right there. I mean, you've obviously read that amazing bit from Clytemnestra at the end, which yeah. absolutely pierces for oh, me. Man. You know, that 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 way that we turn the, vic- the, the, the victim into the criminal. I feel yeah. like we do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Pretty much everything Clytemnestra says in this play is just <laughs> fantastic. Um, and, you know, the obvious choice, but it, it is the choice, really. Um, well, actually, there are two moments. The first, the the one that I really love is the one at the end when, you know, they rush in and see his body on the floor. And then she says, um, I'm not going to do the whole speech because it's just, it's just, it's just orcs and it. it's just cringe. Like an actor 
doing a speech no, over do a podcast. No, I'm no. Come on, look. I'm sitting under my stairs in my flat. I'm not doing it. But I'll I'll read I'll read it. <laughs> Bo- Bo- no, I'm gonna give it a full blown performance. It's just yeah, it's just no, come on. Right. So <laughs> she says, you know. <laughs> oh, Words, endless words I've said to serve the moment. Now it makes me proud to tell the truth. How else to prepare a death for deadly men who seem to love you? Now that line is just like, it's so uh, complex because she's, you know, the, the whole idea of deadly men who seem to love you. It's like she's, she's, she's saying he's, 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 you know what you were talking about with the gaslighting earlier, right? He's kind of told mm. me that everything is for my for my own good. And he he killed our daughter because the gods willed it. And he's come home and he's rained down all this love on me while he's brought this concubine back that apparently, oh, it's such a shame that she's a slave, but she followed me here. You know, it, it's, it's so complex. Um, and the idea of deadly men, the idea of people who just kind of, you know, spread death. Um, who 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 just you know scatter it around? Um, who carry it with them? I just think it's so. I don't know. I think it's it's very clear that this woman has been sitting for ten years thinking about the murder of her child, um, and waiting for this moment. And there is, I just, I'm, I just listen. I'm not inciting murder on this podcast, but I'm like power to <laughs> her power to her you know um yeah definitely and like isn't that um oh, doesn't that talk to the moment now as well like that is an amazing line deadly men who, who seem to love you like i feel like that that's been the war over the last few years yeah. is trying to reveal these men as deadly yes i think she she's just tired of the lies she's tired of like because even the, even the way he greets his people, you know, when he comes back, and everyone's like, oh, Agamemnon, we love you. And he's so, he's like the most pious, honestly, this guy in this play, he's like the love, he's the most charming, like, you know, shoot him a look and everyone swoons, that kind of guy. Like, you can just see him in the modern day setting, right? Like, beautiful, <laughs> cascading, wavy hair. And it's just like, <laughs> hang on, he, he, like, yes, it's great because he won. But if he'd lost, you'd all be slaves right now, you know? So again, the deadly men who seem to love you. It's like he seems to love his people. He talks about how much he'd do for his people and how he's so glad that he was able to do. But he put all of your lives in risk. All of your lives, you know? So she sums him up in this kind of perfect sentence. And you're so right. It's, it's, It's very much about saying this is the reality of this person. Leave alone the smiles and the kind of crocodile um, the crocodile teeth that he's given you, you know, this is the real guy. This is the real deal. He's He causes this damage and we need to hold him accountable for that. Um, and she says, well, if no one else is going to do it, if you guys aren't going to exile him, I will do that for you. I'm going to, I'm going to take it into my own hands and do it. It's just, oh man, it's great. I'd love to do this show. I really would love to do it. I think it's so cool. So talk to me about that. If you're going to do this show, like how how are you gonna do it? Like who 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 would be in it with you? Um, what what kind? Of, do you have any sense of like what your production would look like? Well, like I said, it'll probably last four days, um, maybe yeah, five. Yeah, durational. Yeah, just a sleepover. Um, everyone get everyone everyone gets fed. Everyone gets a place to sleep. You know, everyone has toilets and stuff. It's fine. Um, it's all very humane. <laughs> There'd be lots of fire. Lots of fire. Don't know why. Nice. Don't know where. But obviously, you know, they do this whole speech at the beginning, this whole section where they're talking about the fire being the symbol that Troy has been taken. And the Clytemnestra does this long monologue about the, the the route that the fire travelled all the way to her to let her know that Troy has been taken. Um, but, yeah, there'd be lots of fire because fire is fun as well, isn't it? It just looks good. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> and, you know. It's just fun, right? Exactly. And if all else fails... I can just, you know, dazzle them with some pyrotechnics. Um, <laughs> on day four, <laughs> when everyone's flagging. Yeah, yeah just like, quick, fire. back into fire. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure fire. We've got any more gas canisters left for the fire. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been burning five days, Sheila. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, that is, that's another thing. So wear, wear appropriate clothing because it will be warm. It will be warm in there. Yes. And I will not be sacrificing the fire, I'm afraid. So there will be water <laughs> as well passed around. And what about an Agamemnon? 
do you have like a is there is there an actor who you'd love to see play Agamemnon? Oh, I haven't I haven't thought about that. I'm terrible with names, so I'm not even going to try and like give you a specific name. But I think in terms of like a a description of an actor, yeah, I think I would like to find somebody who is um, quite, and I mean this in you know the most positive way, but quite unassuming, um, mm. almost sort of, almost sort of. Bill Gatesy, right? Because oh, nice. you know, because like Bill Gates has got an extraordinary amount of wealth and power and all the rest of it, intelligence. Um, you know, and and he used to be sort of taken the mick out of the fact that he just wears quite everyday clothes, you know, and just is doesn't necessarily spend lots of money on himself. And and I mean, I, I don't really know much about him as a person, but I think in terms of the aesthetic, somebody like that who you're just sort of not this sort of stereotype of a huge warrior who's gone and sacked all these cities and come back and rah, rah, rah. I feel like that's quite obvious. And I feel like that takes away from what Clytemnestra is saying about these deadly men who seem to love you, right? And just, just trying to add in some layers of this guy who, you know, you, you wouldn't think he'd go off to war and sacrifice his own daughter. Like, of course he wouldn't do that. Um, why would you know? Yeah, no, yeah. of course, no. Him, he was always so nice. You know, when you see those serial killer talk to me, yeah, he's, yeah. Like, he's always such a nice guy. He had people in his fridge. What? Oh, weird. Um, so like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'd try and find someone like that. You know, I don't know who that would be, but yes, yeah, right, yeah. There's this, like you say, there's the Trump version, right? Which is the really easy production yeah. at this yeah. point. Um, but but in a way, at least you can sort of see and name Trump, right? Whereas yeah, that those deadly men who seem to love us, you, you, that's harder to see and name. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And and it, I mean, we're in this kind of weird time now where even somebody like Trump, we sort of have these like huge denial about um, this sort of denialism going on about who he is and what he stands for in within certain groups of people, which is just sort of bizarre and very disturbing. Um, but yes, like I think, you know, in order to kind of get that tension in there, it has to be woven in with this person who's, you know, got charisma, but not necessarily um, in an obvious way. I sort of, I, I, I mean, I think it would, be, it would definitely come in the sort of casting process, but that person would have to have something undiscernible or indiscernible I don't know what the word is that you you can't quite put your finger on but there's something there's a way that they kind of hook you in um but at the same time they don't necessarily always have your best interest in heart they they do act selfishly and we just sort of forgive them um Mm. you know and why do we do that yeah I'd love to do this show if anyone's listening (laughs) (laughs) anyone's listening yeah yeah. yeah Come on, guys! Mm. Come on, guys! Give give Sheila yeah. her Agamemnon. This just yeah. makes sense. I'd love to direct it. I mean, I've never. I'm 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 not a director by trade, um, and to be honest, I probably shouldn't be trying to direct a five day Greek tragedy <laughs> as my first production. I mean, well, everything else that you've attempted to do you've sort of been wildly successful at, so you might as well. <laughs> so might as well have a at directing jump as well. in the deep end. Jump in. I mean, exactly. Well, that's a production I want to see yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Um, also, I've been asking uh, guests um, what, what they if they got any sort of theatrical guilty pleasures um, that they've been enjoying. Particularly, so, so much theatre has been kind of available uh, online at the moment. I mean, me, uh, mine has been Les Mis and Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat uh, soundtracks Amazing. on repeat. Amazing, um, just because they make me so happy. I mean, Joseph is much more questionable than I remembered it. I've mm-hmm. revisited it, um, and there, there's. <laughs> There's some pretty dodgy sort of xenophobia going yeah, on. Yeah, some there. moments where you're uh, like, oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's quite punchy, Lloyd Webber. Um, but have you got any, any, oh, any, it doesn't have to be theatrical, I suppose, but th- things that bring you joy, those things that you're going back to, you know, those sort of things that just give you that little hit of joy, songs, plays, books, films, you know, yeah. anything like that. There's two yeah. things, there's two things. There's Disney, which has always been, I love Disney. I've got Disney Plus. Yeah. Um I haven't been able to rinse it as much as I wanted to because, like, it's eating all of my data. So I'm having to, like, ration it a little bit. It's just killing my data. But I watched Aristocats. Oh, man, what a fantastic film. That bit when they, like, go to the house and they're all, like, the jazz cats. Very good play on words. Didn't understand it when I was a kid. I get it now. Um, And they're all, like, like, playing Yeah. (laughs) Yes. 
I mean, we could do a whole episode on that as well if you want, because I've got some ideas. Yeah. For... Guys, tune in for episode two, Aristocats, the Steeler film. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I love Disney. I've always loved Disney. Um, and my favourite Disney is Sleeping Beauty. My best friends will know that. I'm obsessed with Maleficent. Um, I think she's actually I, I kind of see like a world where Maleficent and Clytemnestra sort of merge in this like weird hybrid maybe that's what my um maybe that's what my production would be we'll talk we'll yeah. talk we'll, we'll figure it out um no but I do there is a um there, there is a sort of a uh, type emerging in your heroines <laughs> yeah <laughs> vengeful totally women badass women <laughs> Maybe, maybe I've got some, you know, deep-seated revenge that I need to enact. I'm not sure. Hopefully it's that possible. Will come it's possible. possible. Um, and my other thing, which I don't even call it a guilty pleasure because I'm so proud of it, is RuPaul's Drag Race. I oh, yeah. just cannot, like this series has been sensational. Heidi, Heidi, Aphrodite, or whatever she wants to call herself now. She she was called Heidi in Closet and everyone rinsed her for a name and was like, you need to change her name. So she spent the whole series trying to change her name. She's, I just love her. Um, and then Jada Essence Hall, I love her and want her to win. If this goes out before then, probably won't. But I just, <laughs> it's just the most amazing show ever. I just, I, I can't. But the transformations that these men go through, and the ideas, and the creativity. I suppose that's why, even though um, it's not necessarily a theatre show, it's so theatrical. You know, the the challenges that they do, and the ideas that they have, the ways they present themselves, and ah, the community that they form. I just, it's just the best thing. I find myself so invested, like nail biting. And when they're lip syncing for their lives at the end, I'm actually like stressed, really stressed about it. <laughs> I've got the same with the Queer Eye. Like I've just oh, been going back through all yeah, of Queer Eye. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. there's like a formula on about minute 39, I'm yeah. weeping. Like yeah. Every episode, it's like exactly on the minute. Oh, I'm like, gosh. now I'm weeping. Yeah. Oh my God. They get us through. Yeah, they really do. They get us through. Oh man. Thank you. RuPaul and all the queens of Disney it's been amazing thank you thank you Sheila as well we're putting you up there with Disney and RuPaul uh, oh, as thanks. a hero to get us through these times <laughs> oh wait um, I have I have one piece of trivia that I wanted to throw in oh yeah hit me I was trivia because re- I was yes, really proud of myself because I was like I'm not gonna be able to find any trivia <laughs> for a Greek tragedy where there's all this crazy stuff going on so speaking of Tantalus right who um, yes. was the original person? Such a who... natural segue. There. <laughs> Speaking uh, of Tantalus, Tantalus. Go back to you know <laughs> me old mucker Tantalus, um, who started off the whole curse by annoying the gods. His punishment was to spend his time in the underworld with Hades um, in a pool of water, which he could not drink because every time he goes to drink the water, it recedes. And with a tree right next to him, with lots of low-hanging fruit, which he's just unable to reach it's just out of reach so he's doomed to be hungry and thirsty forever and that is where the word tantalize comes from oh yeah that is a huge bit of trivia that's a good bit of trivia isn't it good bit of that trivia. is huge that's where tantalize comes from so despite the fact that, that tantalus so basically ruined everyone's life for 300 years um he gave <laughs> us that really nice word so thanks, yeah. So it sort of swings and roundabouts. Do you know what I mean? Really, like you just got you got to give them the lights and the shades, and you got to you know got to portray them yeah. in a fair light. So thank you for that. Yeah, word. exactly. Yeah, I've I've got one bit of fun trivia I'll share as well, which I found quite oh, interesting, yeah. which is about Aeschylus who wrote it. Mm-hmm. So before Aeschylus, there was only one actor in the show, uh, in, in any in drama, they were just taught themselves. Whereas after Aeschylus, there was two actors. So he sort of almost was like invented duologues. Wow. Which is pretty punchy, I think. That's um, mad. That's mad. Yeah. Isn't that mad? Like, imagine being the guy who was like, I like it with one actor. Don't get me wrong, I'm into it. But here's an idea. What about? Double it. <laughs> Double it, guys. It's like, no. Exactly. Maybe, but maybe they were just all talking to themselves before that point. And then Aeschylus exactly. was the person who invented conversation as a, as a societal idea. <laughs> you can talk to each other. Just monologuing. Yeah, like me for three weeks in the dark. I need to get with the times actually and get under Aeschylus's um, train yeah. of thought because I've just been talking to myself yeah. for the last two months. I've spent my time in my flat talking to myself. Actually, I need to talk to other people. Ah, genius. Yeah. Okay. Aeschylus cool. is a man for our times. What can we say? Yeah. He's a man for our times. <laughs> 
Um, Sheila and Tim, you're so amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us today and giving us your time. That was Thank you for fantastic. having me. It was really fun talking about that. Thank you. Oh, God, what a privilege. And what amazing just to hear your insight into that play. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Well, if anyone, um, if anyone wants a Clytemnestra or a, any other vengeful woman, I'm here. Yeah. Here for hire. They know, I mean, the offers will be pouring in. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> Sheila, a Tim there, everyone. I absolutely love talking to Sheila about Agamemnon. She made it feel like this play had just been written yesterday. Not that it was a two and a half thousand euro classic. And I, for one, am in for her five day production of it starring Bill Gates. Also, I love that school drama teachers are getting such regular shout-outs. They are the unsung heroes of the theatre industry, and I would love to say a big thank you to Mr. Tolman and Miss Jennings for lighting the fire of theatre in me as a youngster. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed, and thank you again for supporting the Old Vic and the Sherman in these tough times. If you fancied making a donation to our theatres, no matter how big or small, it would be hugely appreciated, and you can do that at either the Sherman Theatre or Old Vic website. Thank you again. Until next time, go gently and go safely. The Old Vic would like to thank principal partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Elliott Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who supported us through this difficult time. 